All right, John chapter 3. In Jesus' time, there was a very religious man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man who believed the Bible from beginning to end. Nicodemus believed everything that was in it. And Nicodemus had committed himself to doing what was in the Bible. Nicodemus wanted to obey God. He's a very religious man. And so Nicodemus was known for his religion. He's known for his holiness, goodness. There's one thing Nicodemus was missing. Nicodemus had only been born once. It wasn't enough. Nicodemus had only been born once, but it wasn't enough. How many times have you been born? Just once? I hope you've been born more than that. I've been born twice. You say, I pity your mother. I've been born twice. Nicodemus heard Jesus talking. And he said some very fascinating things. He said, I'm the life. He said, I'm the way. He said, no man comes unto the Father but by me. And then Nicodemus saw Jesus performing some miracles. Nicodemus saw Jesus heal a blind man. Saw him cause a lame man to walk. Saw him take away leprosy. So Nicodemus was highly impressed with Jesus' miracles. And he wanted to talk to Jesus. But he had a problem. His fellow religious brothers didn't believe on Jesus. And they would ridicule him if he came to Christ publicly and asked questions. So Nicodemus decided he would go to Jesus at nighttime when it was dark. After all the crowd had gone home. So he was careful to note where Jesus was staying. In the nighttime he put a little hood on so no one could see him. And he slipped down to where Jesus was and asked for an audience. And when he came up to Jesus, he said in chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So Nicodemus acknowledged to Jesus right away that he was from God. And that didn't mean that he acknowledged that he was God, but simply that somehow God was behind these miracles. Here's Jesus' response. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus had just flattered Jesus. He just acknowledged his greatness. He said, we know you're come from God. Well, now, most people have been kind of thrown off by that, and they'd have backed up, shuffled their feet, grinned a little bit, you know, and said, oh, you know, it's okay. Uh, it's just to just give God the glory. Don't give me the glory. But instead, Jesus looks right at Nicodemus, and he says to him, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. If you don't get born again, you won't see God's kingdom. Now, Nicodemus immediately thought, well, I weigh 178 pounds. I'm five foot nine. My little old mother's not that big. How could I be born a second time? I don't know if my mother would want to go along with that or not. And so here's what he says. 
Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was serious. He wasn't being a smart aleck. After all, what Jesus said was pretty way out. You've got to be born again. And he thought, can I go back into my mother's womb and come back out again? Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you, except a man be born of water. That was that physical birth that Nicodemus had. And of the spirit. That's the birth Jesus is talking about. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now some silly people think that being born of the water is water baptism. In the first place, no one's ever, ever born comes out of the water. Nothing about coming out of water it makes you born. Jesus would have been changing the subject if he would introduce water baptism here. And the word baptism doesn't appear. Anyone who's ever delivered a baby and, or caught one, as I have, knows that they come by water. And the first sign of the coming baby is the water breaks, they call it. And the baby is shoved out by means of hydraulics. The baby is in a bag surrounded with water. And the woman's muscles begin to squeeze that bag. And that bag gets squeezed so hard that it wants to burst. And there's only one little place that's open where it can burst. So the bag breaks right there. And when it does, the baby's head is stuck up against that hole like a stopper in a bathtub. And all that water pressure squeezing against that baby's body is pressing it towards that hole. And as she continues to squeeze, pop, that head comes out, whoosh, that whole body washes out into the bedroom floor or on the bed or wherever you're having your baby. And that baby is born of water. Everybody knows that. And so Nicodemus said, should I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, you've got to be born of water but you've also got to be born of the Spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Now someone said, well, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? Why mention being born of water? Because Jesus is answering Nicodemus' question. And furthermore, there are some individuals who've never been born of water who cannot therefore be born again. You say, who would that be? Angels who sinned. They were never born of water. They were created. And so they cannot be born again even though they've sinned. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. And angels cannot enter the kingdom of God. Even the righteous ones who've never sinned or the sinful ones who disobeyed God, none of them can enter the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. He said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now look at Gabriel there. He came out of Deb's womb. He's flesh. Deb is flesh. Gabe's wife is about to have a baby. It's going to be flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, he said, is spirit. So Nicodemus was thinking about a flesh birth. Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. Being born again by the Spirit of God. 
And Jesus said to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, Nicodemus was standing there with his mouth open. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. You must be born again. You'll never go to heaven unless you're born again. You can join a Christian church, become a Christian, be baptized in water, and keep the commandments of God, but not be born again. And when you die, you'll die without God lost. Being a Christian won't get you to heaven. You must be born again. Believing that Jesus is won't get you to heaven. You must be born again. Believing that Jesus died on a cross for you won't get you to heaven. You must be born again. Asking Jesus to come into your heart and take away your sins won't get you to heaven. You must be born again. There are many lost homeschool kids today and, and children of Christian families because they were raised in Christian homes to be pretty good and to believe all the things the Bible teaches. And they think that because they ask Jesus in their heart that they're saved. You know, I see a lot of parents that are in a hurry to get their kids saved. So they'll go to a six-year-old and they'll say, do you want to be a Christian? You want Jesus in your heart? Oh, yes, I want Jesus in my heart. All right, then bow your head and tell Jesus that you want him to come into your heart and you want him to forgive you and you want to go to heaven. So the kid prays the prayer. And the parent says to the kid, now, now you're a Christian. Now Jesus lives in your heart. And then the kid comes along about nine years old and says, you know, I don't know if Jesus is in my heart or not. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And the parents say to the kid, would God lie to you? No. Well, what does God say? It says, he that believes on him will be saved, not come into condemnation. Do his pass from death life? Do you believe? Yeah, I believe. Then you must be saved. Don't call God a liar. Oh, I don't want to call God a liar, so I must be saved. And the kid gets up about 16 years old and begins to wander in sin. And kid goes to revival meeting or something. And here's the gospel priest and says, you know, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm saved. And somebody counts them and says, you're just doubting your salvation. What you just need is some assurance of your salvation. Let me give you three verses that will give you assurance of your salvation. Give them three Bible verses. Kid looks at those and says, well, I must be saved because the Bible says this or that. And the kid's never been born again. And then he gets in sin and lives that way for 10 years. And then when he's 28 years old, he has an experience with God. And he understands that he's a sinner and depraved and lost. He understands he's undone and he feels guilty. And one night he cries out after a big drunk and found out he's got gonorrhea. He calls on God. He confesses his sin. And suddenly the sense of guilt all goes away. And he starts loving God. Starts hating sin. Wants to be free from it. Walk in righteousness and holiness. And he goes to church and tells the pastor. And the pastor says, you want to rededicate your life to God then, right? Yeah. And said, okay, you've gotten right with God now. The wanderer has come home. The backslider has been restored. No. What happened to him was he got born again. He never was saved to start with. Listen. Jesus said you must be born again. 
Good Christian homeschoolers must be born again. Now, my driver's license has a date on it. It says October 17th, 1945. And uh, my birth certificate has an hour and a minute on it. I don't know what it is. I don't remember it. I don't look at my birth certificate very often. Some things never, never had doubts about, so I've never bothered to research it. But everybody's got a birth certificate. Most people do anyhow. That's uh, been born lately. And it will have 1205, July the 3rd, or whatever it is. That's when you were born. You see, no birth certificate reads July the 3rd through the 7th. Right? You don't, don't, doesn't take that long. Some women feel like it does, but it doesn't. <laughs> when you're born, you pop, you're out, and it happens in a moment's time. And you know what? No one has a birth certificate in one state and another birth certificate in another state with two different dates on it. You just have one birth certificate with one date on it. That's when you got born. Do you have a birth certificate for your second birth? Was there a second birth? When did it take place? Now, just like I don't remember the hour that I got born the first time doesn't change the fact I did right and uh, there's some people some old people you can go up to them you can say when were you how old are you well I don't know I'm 97 or, or to 99 somewhere in the neighborhood oh you don't know what year you're born no don't where were you born I would think it was in Alabama what hour of the day I have no idea now that doesn't delegitimize their first birth because they do not remember or cannot exactly identify the hour and the day but no one questions the fact there was an hour and there was a day and they did get born the first time and there may be someone who's born again who doesn't know the exact hour or day or moment it may have been during a course of a week when you struggled and wrestled with God during the course of a week or a, even a month when you came to understand the gospel for the first time and your soul found rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, you began to worship God and praise him. And you're not quite sure if it was Monday or Thursday. You're not quite sure if it was that morning experience or that afternoon experience you had or when the middle of the night when you woke up and began to praise and thank God for your deliverance. You're not quite sure. But if you're born again, you know that there was a day, there was an hour, there was a minute, and there was a second when God placed his spirit in you by his blood, washed your sins away, and made you his child. Now the old lady doesn't doubt her first birth because of all the calluses on her hands and her arthritis, because of the children she's born and the life she's lived. In other words, her life testifies to her birth. And I don't doubt that I am born again because I have a spiritual life. Not because of three verses in the Bible that I try to make personal. The Bible says the Spirit of God 
bears witness with our spirit that we're his. I experience the spirit of God bearing witness with my spirit that I'm his. My life is a history of knowing God. My life is a history of God speaking to me. Spanking me. See, my boy gave here, he would never doubt that he has a daddy. He can remember the times I've taken stick and worn him out. He can remember the times I've taken him fishing and hunting and all the other things that we did together. We have a history together. Now, do you have a history with God? Do you remember all the experiences you've had with God, all the blessings? Now, I've had drunks say to me, yeah, I asked God to help me heal my daughter. She's in a hospital and after four weeks she got out and I know God answered my prayers and so I must be a Christian. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, do you have real, vital, living, joyous experiences with God so that you know that you know that he knows you and you know him and your spirit's alive with him? Not to mind emotional experiences. I'm talking about when you're, man, you're bush hogging. Talk with God, God talks with you. Do you enjoy his presence? Is he as real as your father? When you lie down at night, does he speak with you? Do you know him? Do you worship him? If you don't, you've not been born again. Because where there's new birth, there is life. Life. Life is what proves the birth. A birth certificate doesn't prove it. Life is what proves the birth. So, Jesus said to him, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Then he says this, The wind bloweth where it listeth. The sailboat in the sea will list to the starboard or list to the port. It'll lean this way, it'll lean that way. As the wind catches the sails and fills them up, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whether it cometh or where it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. In other words, he said, the wind blows, and you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You get out in the sailboat, you think the wind's out of the north. You're utilizing it. All of a sudden, it starts coming out of the northeast. You have to adjust your sails. And then you, suddenly it turns, and it comes out of the northwest. I've been sailing along, wind got out of the north, and suddenly it starts coming out of the south. Opposite direction. Totally, completely. And these things are unexpected. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God moves us just like the wind moves a sailboat. Fills the sails, carries it along. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? So Nicodemus is intrigued by what Jesus said. And he said, how can it happen? How can it happen? How can this happen to me? Jesus said unto him, Art thou master of Israel, knoweth not these things? Uh, <laughs> you'd think this was time to tell him, but instead Jesus wants to humble him. He said, Nicodemus, you mean to tell me that you're a doctor of divinity? And you know anything about being born again? You mean to tell me you're the pastor of a big church? 
and you've never been born again? You mean to tell me you're head of a ministry and you've never been born again? And you, you want to know? It's amazing. Jesus is kind of insulting Nicodemus here. He said, Verily I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Now who's Jesus talking about we? Later he says the father testifies on my behalf and the works that I do testify on my behalf. And he said in the mouth of two or three witnesses the thing will be established. So he said we, he's talking about God the father and God the Holy Spirit and himself. We testify that we do know. And of that that we've seen and you received not our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He said, if you don't believe about the natural things, how would you believe the supernatural? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. Now look at this. Here's what Jesus said. He said, no man ascended up to heaven, points up. But he that came down from heaven points to himself. Even the son of man points to himself again, which is in heaven. And he points back up. Now, what did he actually say? He said, no man came down from heaven except me. I came down from heaven and I'm in heaven right now. While I'm down here on earth. Now, that's kind of wild talk, isn't it? Why could he say that? Because Jesus was both man and God at the same time. He both walked on a body on the earth and filled the universe at the very same moment. What he's doing, Jesus is establishing his authority to say the things he's saying because he said to Nicodemus, I say it and you ought to believe me because I'm the man who came down from heaven. I'm the man who's in heaven right now. Now he's going to actually answer Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus asked the question, how can these things be? In verse 9, and 10, 11, 12, and 13 are not answers as to how the new birth can take place. That is an experience of humbling Nicodemus and establishing Jesus' credentials to give the answer. So he gives the answer in verse 14. Would you like to know how to be born again right now? Would you like to know how you can be born again right now? Here's Jesus' answer. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the wilderness, in Numbers 21, I believe it is, the children of Israel had complained about one thing or another in the wilderness. And they were unhappy and discontent. And so God sent fiery serpents into the camp. Suddenly they woke up and the camp was full of vipers. Under their blankets, surrounding the tents, hiding in their firewood, behind every rock, hundreds of thousands of poison snakes filled their camp. Hundreds of people were bitten right away that morning. You could hear the screams and panic throughout the camp. They ran to Moses and said, look, God sent these fiery serpents. We're dying. Do something to save us. And Moses goes to God and 
said, what can I do to save the people from these fiery serpents? And God says, Moses, sculpture a serpent like the ones that's biting the people. Sculpture it out of brass. And then put it on a pole and erect it in the middle of the camp, high up where everyone can see it. And then send runners throughout the camp and tell them that if they'll look at the serpent lifted up on the pole, they'll be healed. So hastily, Moses had a brazen serpent sculptured and placed it on a pole in the middle of the field. And runners went through the camp and warned everyone of the need to look at the serpent on the pole. Now, a medical symbol today, a medical doctor has a staff with a serpent on the pole. If you get snake bit, you know what they give you? Snake venom. The original way they did it was they injected it in horse blood, infected the horse blood. The horse blood defeats the snake venom. And they process it, I don't know how, and they would give you a shot of that. And that was the antidote to the snake bite. And even to this day, all antidotes to snake bites are snake venom. Now, if you were not scientifically minded, if you were, if you were in uh, like some of the Indians I was with down in Belize, they were so scared of snakes, I killed a yellow jaw viper. And they, they were so scared they wouldn't get close to the dead one within 50, 75 feet. And then I skinned it out and I turned it with the face of the skin up and tacked it to a board. So here's this snake skin with about 50 tacks in it. Flat, you know, tacked to a board with salt on it. And a couple of them come into camp and I pull the snake skin out to show them what I've done and they screech and run. Now that's pretty scared, right? I mean, scared. if I'd have made a hat band, I could have walked right through them, right through a mob with, with that thing. I mean, that's how scared they were. Now, imagine one of them got snake bit. They don't know anything. They're not, not educated at all. Primitive Maya Indians living in Thatcher. Imagine one of them gets snake bit. And you say, hold up, I'm going to fix your cure. And you run and you grab that snake up and you begin to milk it. You milk the poison out of that snake into a little spoon. And then you take that poison and you run over and you inject it into their horse. Now, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the process here. You inject it into their horse. Or you mix it with their horse blood. And then you stick some horse blood with this venom in it. And you put it in a needle and you said, come here, I'm going to give you a shot of this. You wouldn't even caught him even if he'd been snake bit by the worst kind of viper. He'd sure head to the jungle to get out of your way. You know why? Because that sounds like the craziest thing in the world for a cure is more of the same. Right? More of the same. The difference is what they're getting has already experienced the poison, the killing power, and has defeated it. Already experienced the killing power and defeated it. So what goes in is an antibody, antidote to that poison. So Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. You know what the antidote to death is? death do you know what the antidote to sin is sin you know what the antidote to a sinful man is a god man being made sin on your behalf god took his son the lord jesus christ and injected him with the poison of your sin jesus was bitten by the serpent of sin he didn't do anything 
but he was bitten by the serpent of sin. And he died on a cross. And then his blood became the antidote for all sinners. So the Bible tells us that they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. We sing, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The thing that washes away sin is Jesus' blood, who was made sin for us, died as if he were the sinner and became the cure for sin. Dude, you've been injected with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which life became sin, went into the grave, died, was buried, raised again, and now has supernatural eternal life. Dude, you've been injected with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never be born again. He is the new birth. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was pointing to the fact that he would die on a cross. Just as on a high hill visible to all was the brazen serpent, there would come a time when on a high hill visible to all, Jesus would hang as sin for the human race, dying for those who were dying. So when the runners went throughout the camp in Moses' day, I can see them run up to a man saying, look, look, look to the hill, look to the serpent. And he'd say, well, that's against my religion. We don't look at snakes in my religion. In my religion, we only look at doves. He would have died. If someone said, well, that's just your belief. That's a bit old-fashioned, archaic. That doesn't make any sense. I won't look. He would have died. If someone else said, well, my mother has a cure for snake bite and he attempted some home remedy, he would have died. The only cure was the one God provided. And so it is today. Someone comes and says, listen, Jesus died for you to take away your sins. And so well, I don't believe it's that simple. I believe you've got to be baptized in water. You'll die in your sins. Listen, look, look, Jesus died for you. Look at him lifted up on your behalf. Well, I believe you've got to make him Lord of your life. I don't believe just trusting him is enough. You'll die in your sins. Look, Jesus is lifted up to die for you. No, I believe you've got to get the baptism of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking in tongues. You'll die in your sins. Look, Jesus is lifted up for you. I believe you've got to repent of all your sins and be sincerely sorry for all of them. Look, Jesus is lifted up for you. Well, I believe you've got to live a life of obedience and endure all the way unto the end. And then if you do it, maybe you'll be saved in the last days. You'll die in your sins. Jesus is lifted up for sinners. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You've got to be an ungodly sinner and come just as you are. We sing a song, just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. In my hands no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And thus Nicodemus had the chance to be born again. You must be born again. There is no other way. You must be born again. Jesus says finally in verse 16, this famous verse that Every drunk on the gutter can quote to you. I've had him quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son, who's ever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See there, I quote that. 
I never use it with them because they quote it so well they have no idea what they just, what they just quoted. Listen to it slowly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When he says gave, he's talking about as Moses gave the serpent on the wilderness. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's Jesus' answer to the question. How can these things be? You notice the so-called reference to baptism occurred before that question and before that answer. Be born of water and spirit. That's already occurred. You see, at that point, there was no attempt to tell how. This is where it tells how. This is where Jesus answers the question, how to be born again. And the answer does not include any reference that could possibly be conceived to be water baptism. The answer is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. You see, right now, you're condemned if you've not been born again. Because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. See, he gives us the difference between a saved man and a lost man. The difference is that the saved man loves darkness. And what do you mean loves darkness? I mean he shuts the door to his office when no one's looking. He turns the computer on. He does a little search on the web. And he comes up with pornographic images. Because he loves darkness rather than light. I'm talking about that he gets videos that will cause him to indulge in immoral thoughts and lust. Allow him to practice in his imagination sin that he wouldn't go out and do otherwise. And he gets in the dark where no one can see. And indulges in those things and those thoughts. And he thinks no one knows. And he has... No consciousness that all, every angel in heaven is watching. That that is going to be brought public in the day of judgment. That all of his friends, wife and family, are going to know what he did that day in the day of judgment. All of it is going to be brought to light. And he doesn't know that. Love darkness rather than light. That means they slip off, kids. Get a cigarette or a joint or some drugs. And in the darkness, they take it and they party because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The Bible says he that's of the light comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest that they're wrought in God. So a Christian is not one who seeks darkness. He always seeks light. Have you been born again? You have, you have new life. If you don't have new life, you need to be born again. How? Can I be born again? For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. You say, but I've believed. There is a belief that is with the head only. And there is a belief that is with the head and the heart. There's a belief that is nominal. Like a Mormon believes. Like a Muslim believes. Like a Jew believes. Like a Jehovah's Witness believes. Like a Church of Christ believes. That will not save you. And then there's a belief. That is with the heart and soul. As Philip. 
went out to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch, having heard the gospel from the Isaiah 53, said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip answered him, If you believe with all your heart. So there's a belief that's not with all the heart. There is a belief that is with all the heart. And you know, it's simple. Someone said, well, that's easy believism. Belief is very easy. Very easy, but it doesn't come cheaply. It doesn't come glibly. It doesn't come with indifference on the where of the moment. It's not an emotional response. But it is mighty easy at the moment of belief. It is the easiest thing in the world you'll ever do. It's simply giving up, giving over, and letting God be the Savior. This is the second message on this CD. Am I saved? Well, uh, I can see the Lord's already been moving in this direction with a couple of the testimonies we had this morning. Nathan talked about the lady calling him up with the uh, questions and how he pointed out to her that she was making it way too hard, way too difficult to be saved. Now, I've been around for about 50 years watching people get saved. I've been around 60 years, but I've been around about 50 years watching people get saved. I've seen many people profess to be saved and not be. I've seen people profess to be saved four times, four different times, get baptized three times. And then finally, somebody pins them down that they're not saved. They understand that. And they make another profession of faith and still don't get saved. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross to be a Christian. It's not enough to believe that he died for you. Anybody can believe that and say it. It's not enough to ask Jesus into your heart. Many people have done that. It's not enough to repent of your sins. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. And that's a simple thing. But we can make it so complicated. Now, when someone has made it complicated, that is, they've added works or added this thing or added that thing, or depending on their emotions, or they refer back to the answered prayer, how they felt when they had an experience, or any number of things that they do, depending on their the Spirit of God touching them or moving them in some way. When they come to understand that, that they're not saved maybe, and you start explaining to them that they've made it too complicated, you can help them to understand where they've made it complicated. You can help them to see that it's not in their works, and they can admit that. You can help them to see that they must believe what God says in the Bible, and they'll admit that then. And you finally work out all of these details about how they've made it complicated so that you make it uncomplicated and they're still not saved and they still don't get saved because they're still casting their hope upon their mental processes or spiritual processes of unweaving all of this untangling all of this mess in their thinking and getting their thinking straightened out until finally they come to some resolution and still there's no salvation so i've said it before salvation is so easy so uncomplicated and yet for many people it's so very very far away and difficult
They try for years to be saved and never get saved. And then there are a lot of people who profess to have been saved and go along and live a pretty good Christian life and live it for years and think they're saved and don't doubt it. And they too have never been saved. Now sometimes the proof of that is that temptation comes along and they walk off into sin. They go back into drinking or going to drinking for the first time and whoremongering and immorality and godliness and some people just drift cold and drift away from the faith and away from Christianity and lose sight of God and just live their own life. But the really scary thing is those people who live right up till the day they die, right up until judgment, confident they know the Lord, and then find out they don't, they never did. I never knew you, he said. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now you remember the sweet little girl that's been here several times that was here last week. A fine Christian girl raised in a Christian home, homeschooled, a virgin, moral, uh, righteous in an external way. No one would ever find fault with her in her Christian life. Well, she got saved last week, last weekend when she was here. She'd never been born again. She was a Christian, but she'd never been born again. Never had her sins washed away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. She wrote a letter back and said, I'll just read a part of it. She's told by how she got saved. She said, I'm sure that uh, this weekend is going to create some problems. I'm not sure what to do. I pray for wisdom. I'm so happy to be saved and free from bondage. I'm afraid, though, that the relationship with my parents will has turned sour. I still want them to love me and trust me. I want them to understand, yet... I fear my mom will be close-minded and come after me with verse after verse to prove that what I now believe is wrong. I have for so many years questioned what I truly believed, and now I know the truth, and the truth has set me free. So she's anxious about going home and telling her parents that what she now believes about the Lord Jesus Christ in freedom is going to create problems in the family. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, we read this. He said, Wherefore the rather brethren, he's talking to the Christians, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He says to professing Christians, become diligent to make sure that you are in fact called and elected that you are saved. Make sure of it. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he warns the church at Corinth. He says, examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. So he says, he commands us to examine ourselves. Now, Matthew 18, 1. At the same time, the disciples came unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called unto him a little child, set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he said, but that's applying to the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he says about the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, 
Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now Matthew said, except you be converted and become as a little child. In Luke he says, except you receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Now, how does a little child believe? How does a little child receive? Notice the way he says that, except you be converted and become as a little child, you won't enter the kingdom. So there must be a conversion before you get saved. There must be a conversion of thought. There must be a conversion of belief. There must be a conversion of perspective before you get saved. You have to come as a little child. You have to be converted and come as a little child in order to be saved. Now, a little child does not rationalize, does not think through. A little child doesn't analyze. A little child just comes just like they are in simple, streamlined, straight faith, believing what God says, and it's so easy for them. When an adult gets a hold of these concepts and starts analyzing them, he's no longer like a little child. When an adult starts wondering, well, have I repented? Did I do one? Did I do two? Did I do three? Did I, did I take all of the proper steps? And he's no longer coming like a little child. When someone says, did I truly believe this or did I believe that? And how did I feel? How did it affect me? And what got changed? And then they're no longer coming like a little child. When one, someone says, well, am I trusting in my works? Or am I trusting in this? Or am I trusting in that? And they begin to analyze and consider they're no longer coming like a little child. See, you must be converted and simply come to God wide open to receive him. For him to receive you just like you are. It's so easy. So many times on the street we've just run into somebody and give them the gospel and bam, they're saved just like that. You tell them what Jesus did for them, how he died and how simple it is. You don't tell them to stop sinning or start believing this way or believing that way or feeling this way or that way. You just give them the straight gospel. And they believe and they're saved. But then there's so many religious people that are not coming as little children. They're coming with all kinds of baggage like that girl did last week. They come with the baggage of little head coverings or knowing that it won't save you but feeling guilty if you don't do it. They come with a little baggage of reading their Bible and praying prayers and not doing this and doing that thing, having long hair or on a woman or a man not shaving his beard or shaving his beard or parting his hair in the middle or parting it on the side or the way he dresses or doesn't dress and whether he rides in a truck or a buggy or, you know, I mean, just there's an endless amount of things that people come up with that's supposed to test or prove or demonstrate their salvation and they're no longer coming as children. They're coming very sophisticatedly, very complicatedly. When you have to sit down and talk for hours to work out those differences and your salvation's based on it, you got problems. It's so easy to come, and yet we put so many things in the way. The rich man came unto Jesus and said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is right after the statement in Luke 18, verse 17, where he says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God's little child shall in no wise enter therein. That's his statement. Now, here's his illustration. 
Here's this illustration of someone coming, but not like a child. Listen to it. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? When a little child wants something, they don't walk up and say, What can I do to get this? That's a bit complex. They just say, Give it to me. You know? But this guy came up with the idea that he could do something. That something would be required of him and he was ready to perform it. At least he wanted to consider what he had to do. And so he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. That's God. And he's trying to point to his deity. That's not our subject today. Thou knowest the commandment of God. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, all of these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. In Matthew, he said, What lack I yet? The man did. So the man recognized, this rich man recognized, that with all the things he had done in keeping the commandments, there was still a lack. There was still a lack. He recognized something was not right. Something was missing. Now, I think half of those of you who are here this morning, at least half, are not saved. I think half of you have never been saved. Half the people in this room. Now, I don't know for sure. Can't prove that. But I think at least half of you. And I think the one thing that marks most of you, not all of you, is a sense of lack. A sense of lack. That I'm missing something. You haven't quite got a hold of fellowship with God. You haven't quite gotten a hold of the idea that, that Jesus Christ made peace for you. And that you have peace with God. There is a struggle within you to do something, feel something, or believe something to make things right. And it just won't get right. And so this man had a lack. He knew he did. What lack I yet? Jesus said, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now that's pretty heavy. <laughs> this, this guy's really rich. Got a lot of money. A lot of property. And he lacked something. And Jesus said, the thing you lack is me. You lack me. But there's something standing in your way of coming to me. And that's your riches. So sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. That will take care of your lack. Now you say, well, that's not very childlike. That's, that's sort of adult-like. That's kind of complex. And isn't Jesus challenging him to do some works? Not at all. God requires no condition. To our coming, except coming. But if we put something in the way ourselves, then that thing must go for us to come. Let me give you a very simple illustration. Now, I don't give invitations for people to walk down aisles and make professions of faith. You know that. I haven't done that for 30 years. Because I got too many false converts doing that. But, a friend of mine was preaching one time and 
he'd witnessed to this fellow, and the fellow came to a meeting, and he sat there and wrung his hands, and he twisted his hands, and after the meeting, he went back and he asked him, he said, how come you won't come forward to be saved? He said, I'll get saved, but I won't come forward and stand up in front of all those people. I will not, I will not come in public and do that. Now, this preacher friend of mine knew that that's not required to be saved. He knew that. He knew that this fellow could be saved right there in his living room. He could just call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He could trust him and be saved. But he also knew something about this fellow that the man was very proud. Very proud and, and very concerned about how he looked before other people. On those old-fashioned southern rednecks. And so the preacher, I think, wisely said to him, until you're willing to come publicly and confess Jesus Christ, you're not going to be saved. In other words, that man had erected this barrier himself. He had decided that he was not going to humble himself in this public way to come to Christ. Now, it's a shame that religion had erected that barrier right there. But you know, anytime you put something between you and Christ, if you say, I'd like to be a Christian, but I like wearing earrings. No, I ain't probably you wearing earrings, okay? But if you were in a church where it was outlawed, and you said, I'd like to be a Christian, but I just don't, I just don't, I don't, I, I like wearing earrings. Do you know you're not going to get saved till you're willing to give up your earrings? Because you're the one that's put it there. And that may be a false premise, but you put it there. In other words, you're loving your earrings more than you love God. Right? And if you say, well, I'd like to be a Christian, but I just don't want to quit smoking. Well, I'm not going to come to you and explain to you that you can become a Christian and keep on smoking. Although if I were preaching to you on the street and you were smoking, I would never mention your smoking and I would not tell you you had to give it up. And when I gave you the gospel and you got saved with a cigarette in your hand, blowing rings, I would not say you'd fail to be saved because you were still smoking after you got saved. I wouldn't make it an issue. The issue would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you hold up your cigarette and say, this cigarette means more to me than coming to God, then you're not going to get saved. You're going to have to do what Jesus said to the rich man. You're going to have to give it up and come to him. And that's true of anything that you put between you and God. Even if someone else helps you put it there. If you say, I would like to come to God, but you see... I love my pornography, and I know if I did, I'd have to give it up. I've had many a queer say to me, I'd like to come to God, but I have this love for the same sex. And so I just, I can't stop being who I am. Now, I would never dare say to that queer that all you've got to do is call upon Jesus and ask him to save you you don't have to give up being a queer. I would not say that to him. I'd say to him, if being a queer means more to you than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll never be saved. Because you must come as a little child, just come free and open to receive all that God has got. So 
What is it that maybe someone here has created in their own mind or religion has created that you've put between you and God? If you have made a choice between a false religion or a false conviction or a false concept and God, until you choose God over everything else, over all, then you'll never be saved. Now some people would call that repenting of sin. That's not repenting of sin. That's repenting toward God. God does not ask you to stop any of your sins. He just asks you to come with all your heart. That's what he said. Come with all your heart. Believe with all your heart. And if your heart is divided, part of it wants God, but part of it wants something else. You can't be saved. Now, there is this wondrous thing, wondrous state that you have to have to be saved. I, it's elusive. I have a hard time defining it. But it is, we talked about repentance toward God. You've got to have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. You've got to have a desire for purity to be saved. You've got to want truth in your inward parts in order to be saved. See, there's lots of people who are scared of hell. They want to be saved because they don't want to go to hell. But their heart is closed up to God. They don't want him in there. They don't want God inside challenging their bad attitudes, challenging their bitterness, their prejudices, their biases. They don't want God in the secret parts rebuking them. They don't want him challenging their lying, maybe smoking, drinking, fornicating, any number of things. But it doesn't have to be great evil sins. It can just be little sins. Of greediness, or laziness, or pettiness, or honoriness, anything. When your heart is closed, and you don't want God inside, you just want him saving you from hell. You won't get saved. You can be so scared you're trembling because you saw a movie about hell, or you read a sermon about hell, or, or saw a book. You can be so scared that you fall down and beg God to save you. But all you're wanting is to get out of hell. You don't really want Jesus Christ in your life. You'll not get saved. There must be a repentance toward God. A turn of the self to receive, to believe, to possess, to be possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you won't ever be saved. That's why I don't waste time convincing someone that they're saved are trying to help them through scripture see the errors of their fallacies and their beliefs. What I do when someone is uncertain and doubts is I preach Jesus to them again. I just give them the old-fashioned gospel again. You see, what I'm trying to do, listen to me now, I'm trying to make them love Jesus. I'm introducing them to the man, Christ Jesus. And when they see the man, know the man, and love the man, then they'll be saved. Until they do, they won't. 
When your focus is salvation, you won't get saved. When your focus is repentance, you won't get saved. When your focus is faith, you won't get saved. When your focus is getting saved, you won't get saved. Your focus must be God, Jesus, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch said, see, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? He said, you can if you believe with all your heart. Do you believe with all your heart? You know, I, I'm not going to search my heart to see if every corner of it is, you know, like surrendered to God. That's not what he's asking. He's not asking you to, to be righteous with all your heart. He's asking you to believe with all your heart. That means that everything that's in you, right down to the depth of your soul, believes Jesus Christ, believes God. And you know, when you believe that way, and you experience God's forgiveness, when you get saved, you become a new person. You become a happy person, a joyful person. You become a person who despises sin. Who is deeply hurt when you sin, when you lie, when you're angry, when you're bitter, when you're cruel, when you're selfish. You're deeply hurt because you've hurt your Savior. And your thoughts are not, well, maybe I'm proving I'm not saved. I need to start doing right so I'll know I'm saved. No, your thoughts are, I've wounded my Savior. I've sinned against him. And you go back and you correct that actions and you do the right thing. You see, I don't want this morning to just scare some of you into thinking you're not saved. And I know that's a danger. Just get you kind of panicky. Think, well, if that girl wasn't saved, then maybe I'm not saved. Because that won't get you saved, just getting scared and panicky over it. You've got to come to love God. So give diligence to make your calling and your election sure. Make sure that you're in the faith, that Christ is in you. So how do I do that? Go back and read the word of God till you know Jesus, till you love him, till like a child, you just give up and trust him. I remember one time when I was about 16 or 17, we went to a camp meeting. And one of the principal speakers that week was the pastor of a local Baptist church. And he preached on the cross, on Christ dying that week. There was 40 people got saved the night he preached on Christ dying. Did a great job of it. One of the best sermons you'll ever hear on Christ dying. Man about 35 years old. And about a year later, that preacher got saved. About a year later. You say, why wasn't he saved? Well, he gave, he told his experience. He said, you know, he said, I realized that when I was about 15 years old, he said, I was a good boy in the church. Went to a Baptist church. He said, I'd, I'd uh, made a profession of faith. I forgot when he's eight or nine or something. Somebody came up to him and said, son, do you believe Jesus died for you? Yes, sir, I do. Do you believe he, he paid for your sins? Yes, I do. Do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? Yes, sir, I do. And he prayed and asked Jesus in his heart. And they said, well, according to the Bible, you're saved. And they baptized him. He started going to Sunday school. And he learned all the Bible verses. And then when he was about 16, he said they had youth meeting. And they chose him to preach on one of the messages of the youth meeting. 
He said that he, he prepared, and he was, he's a pretty smart fellow, you know. And he got all together, and he preached, and his grandma came up and said, Son, you are called to preach. I've been praying that God would call you to preach. Son, you are called to preach the word of God. And he said, uh, I liked it. So he said, I went to Bible college a couple years later and uh, went out and got my master's degree in theology. And he said, I got called to one church. I got called to another one. And finally, I got to pastor this one. And he said, I have books full of sermons and I have a Bible that I read. And I prepared sermons and I preached them. And he said, all the while I was wondering what it'd be like to really know God. All the while I was wondering what it was like to really know for sure you were saved. He said, but I kept plugging on and serving God. I didn't want to call God a liar. And he realized on about a Tuesday night that he wasn't saved. One of his deacons got saved. Song leader got saved in their meeting in the church. And so he went home and retired and prayed for about 36 hours. He agonized over it, struggled over it like an adult, trying to figure it out and work it out like an adult does, you know, trying to get his thoughts straight on it. And he just couldn't. And finally he realized, he said, that he'd committed the unpardonable sin, that he had been a fake, he'd lied, he'd been a hypocrite so long that he was just too far gone. He couldn't be saved. He said he realized that. He realized there's no hope for him that he was lost. So he said he just gave up. He said, okay, God, I'm lost. There's nothing I can do. He said immediately, God saved me. He said immediately, I got saved. Immediately, I, Jesus came in. I knew I was born again. When I, when I finally came to the place where I realized that there was no hope for me, he said, then I got saved. And so about three years later, he called me to preach a revival meeting in a bigger church that he was pastoring up in uh, Martin, Tennessee. I went up there and preached a week of revival meetings to about 600 people up there in his church he was pastoring. And he continued to give his testimony throughout his ministry of how he had preached for years, but never been saved. Now, I know that scares some of you. It may scare somebody who's saved. It may scare somebody who's saved and, and been letting their heart wander towards the world and uncertain. But if that's the case, you get assurance the same way you got saved. You go right back to the same cross. You go right back to the same shed blood. You go right back to the Savior who died and you say, Lord Jesus, I have no hope. All that I plead, all that I need is Jesus Throw yourself upon him. And if you're not saved, then that's the way you get saved. Now, don't worry about figuring out if you got saved back there. You get saved now. You say, what if I'm already saved? Don't worry about it. You get saved now. You'll, four or five years from now, you'll be able to look back and know, yeah, I was saved five years ago, ten years ago, or I wasn't. I got saved that day. You just need to get saved. If you're not sure, you just need to... Same Jesus, same salvation, same faith. Make sure, give your diligence to make your calling and election sure. But you have to do it for the right reasons, of course. You have to want God. You have to love him. You have to want to know him. All right. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man during the kingdom of God. Because a rich man lets his riches, becomes his love. 
and you can't love God. The disciples said unto Jesus, who then can be saved? In other words, if it's easier to put a big camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved, then what chance do we have? And Jesus' answer was, with men it's impossible. With men it's impossible to be saved. But with God all things are possible. So his answer is, salvation is an impossibility. Even for a rich man. A rich man can be saved. A rich man can be saved and stay rich. But it's impossible. Without a miracle. Because his heart must be taken completely away from his riches and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ only. You realize the same is true for a ball player or a dancer or a country singer or a fisherman or anything else. If anything stands between you and the Lord Jesus Christ, if anything you don't want to give up, anything you won't do, you've got to be converted and become as a little child into the kingdom all right last week we talked about being born again this week we're going to talk about repentance probably one of the most misunderstood words in the bible most people think repentance is a spiritual word they think it is something divine that god thought up and it's not at all in fact i read it in cowboy books I read it on the computer, on the news. The word repent doesn't have a connotation. You have to give it one. In other words, one can be driving down the highway to go to the grocery store to buy eggs and then remember that you bought eggs yesterday. So you repent, you turn around, you go back home. Or you can be deciding that you're going to buy a piece of property and you go look at it and start to pay down on it and then you repent decide you don't want to buy that piece of property or you can be a democrat and decide that you're going to be a republican and you repent and you become a republican instead of a democrat so there are all kinds of ways of repenting there's been all kinds of definitions given for repentance now, most people equate some sort of sorrow with repentance because there in Corinthians he said that godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. And since most people think repentance is something you do to get saved, that it's some step in salvation, they think therefore when it says godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of, that the kind of repentance that saves you must have something to do with sorrow or must be preceded by some kind of a godly sorrow. And so old preachers have the idea of preaching people under conviction, preaching them into sorrow. And so they would preach to work people into a deep sorrow for their sin. And out of that sorrow and grief, they would have an experience of renouncing their sin and coming to God and getting saved and so people think of sorrow godly sorrow is something that's some essential necessary element to biblical new testament repentance in the context of that verse paul is not talking about salvation at all he's talking about having written a letter to them he said i wrote a letter to you and i made you very sorry when i wrote the letter because i said some hard things to you in first corinthians in writing 2 Corinthians, he said, I repented almost of having written the letter. Wrote the letter, and I thought, boy, I shouldn't have written that letter. But no, I didn't really repent. He said, 
because I know that the sorrow that that letter worked in you produced a repentance in regard to kicking a man out of the church. Didn't have anything to do with getting saved. And that godly sorrow that you had when I wrote you the letter worked a repentance in kicking the man out of the church not to be repented of. You went through with this thing that I told you to do concerning this sinning Christian. So it wasn't talking about salvation at all. And so to yank that passage out of its context and assume that Christian New Testament getting saved repentance is something about sorrow is a total misuse, a dishonesty of the scripture. Now, some people think of repentance as turning from sin. The term repent of sin never appears in the Bible anywhere at any time. Never says that. In fact, when you take the word repent and look it up in connection with salvation, in Acts 20, 21, he says repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So biblical saving repentance is not you looking at your sin and deciding that you're going to deal with it, that you're going to somehow feel sorry for your sin. Or that you're going to stop doing your sin. Or you're going to renounce your sin and come for God to save you. No. Bible repentance is you looking at your sin and your condition and deciding that it's hopeless. That there's nothing you can do in regard to it. It's being sorry that you sinned and realizing that that cuts no ice with God. He's just not impressed that you're sorry for your sin. He just really doesn't care because what you ought to be for having sinned is very, very sorry. And what you ought to be after you're saved is very, very sorry that you sinned. But there's no virtue in being sorry. I go to prisons all the time and uh, everybody there is sorry. <laughs> They're sorry they murdered. They're sorry they raped. They're sorry they killed. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry they can't quit being queers right there in the prison. They're sorry that they stabbed a guard. They're sorry they get mad and mean. They're sorry they cussed out their ex-wife on the telephone last week. They're all sorry. They're sorry individuals. Sorry for their life. But God's not impressed. And so sorrow is a natural human trait that we have from time to time over issues that has nothing to do with getting saved repentance. Jesus in the book of Luke is teaching Luke chapter 13. Turn to it just a moment. There were present at that season some that had told of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So as Jesus is standing there, someone begins to tell a current event. Hey, did you see what happened in the news today? No, what happened? Well, Pilate killed some Jews, drained their blood out, and then mixed it with animal blood and put it on the altar to pay for sins. Wow, man, that's a terrible thing to do to somebody. That's awful. Here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said to them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? They did. They supposed that they must have been pretty bad sinners to get that kind of treatment. 
I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now that wasn't very kind. That wasn't very sympathetic and understanding. They're just kind of standing around shooting the ball and somebody walks up and says, hey, did you hear about those terrible people that committed such crimes that Pilate killed them and mixed their blood and offered as a sacrifice? Jesus said, you think they're worse sinners? Well, yeah, probably. He said, I want to tell you something. If you don't repent, you're going to perish in the same fashion. And then of those 18, he's still speaking. This is another current event someone told about. Those 18 upon whom the tower in Saloma fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all the men that dwelt in Jerusalem? So they were building a tower and had all the stones being stacked up there, maybe creating an archway in it or something and had some supporting structure and supporting scaffolding and up there trying to hoist up a big keystone and put it in place and something snapped and broke and it began to fall and rocks started cascading and the scaffolding gave way and crush, smack, break, crunch, splash, 18 of them dead under a big pile of rock rubble. People said, well, they must have done something bad, you know, something sinful for God to kill them like that. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you're going to perish in the same fashion. In other words, rocks are going to fall on you and kill you and squash you. The Bible says of Jesus that he's the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. And those who don't believe on him, the rock will fall on them and grind them to powder. In the book of Daniel, he has a story of a rock cut out without hands coming down the mountain and destroying the nations of the earth. So Jesus is the rock that will bring judgment. And if you don't repent, he said you'll perish in the same way. So, you know, we need to consider, have we repented? Did you repent? Have you repented? If you haven't repented, you're not saved. Now, there's a lot of preachers that go around taking this concept I just delivered, that you must repent to be saved. And the question, the Christian, did you repent? And then the Christian has to go back and try to figure out at the moment he got saved, if he repented, you know. Says, Here I have been a Christian 15 years and now I suddenly realize I didn't repent. That's all a bit silly. You know, it's like this. If you were a kid and I sent you to the grocery store to get some salt, sugar, and crackers. And you got in the grocery store and you go through and you pick out the items and look at some more things and get your stick of candy and kind of hang around and Put it all in the sack after you paid for it and you head home and you're walking home and your little brother says to you, did you get the salt? You picked it up, didn't you? No, I think you picked it up. Yeah, maybe I did. Well, did we get the salt or not? You know, I don't remember for sure if he checked us out. If we got the salt, I, did I lay it on the counter or didn't I? Well, I don't remember him putting the sack. Let's go back and see. Let's go back to the grocery store and see if we got the salt. No, that's not what you do. What would you do? You'd look in your sack, right? If you've got the salt now, it doesn't matter whether or not you remember picking it up or checking it out. The question is, do you have the salt right now? And if you do, then your memory is not essential to your, the salt or your salvation. So some people try to define repentance in several very narrow terms that cause people to go back and search their past experience in their memory to see if they did it just right so that they would be saved. 
You see, repentance is such a nature that it's not an event. It's a state into which you enter. Repentance is not something you perform at some point in life. Having performed it, you go on from there. Repentance is a new perspective. It's a new way of viewing God, yourself, your sin, and life. Repentance is not a one-time doing. It's entering into a different state. And if you, in fact, did repent and believe the gospel and were saved, then you're still repenting right now. And the test is not, did you meet all the criteria for repentance at that moment of salvation? The test is, are you still repenting right now today? You say, well, what, what kind of repenting is that I should still be doing? The same kind that you originally did to be saved. Now, what was the original repentance that you did to be saved? The Bible says repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. See, all repentance is a turn. Repentance is not a sentiment. It's a turn. If I'm walking north and I decide that I want to go south, I must turn around and go back south. Now, repentance is not me walking north saying, I'm really sorry I'm walking north. I, I wish I was walking south. That's not repentance. I feel so bad about walking north. And after all, God judges you by heart, not your actions. And I'd love to walk south, but I just don't have the courage to. I think I, I'll just keep walking north. That's not repentance, is it? Repentance is stopping going north and starting going south. Okay, then someone wants to break it down. Do you repent before you stop going north? Do you repent at the moment you stop? Or must you make your turn and then you've repented? Or is it after you've resumed your travels to the south that you've repented? That reminds me of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. But all the theologians discuss it and have for years. So we'll discuss it, all right? See what we can swallow or spit out. So here we are walking north. And I repent of going north. And so I start going south. You see, the issue is not the mental processes that I go through. The issue is not all of these personal experiences I have. The issue is, which way are you going right now? Are you still going north or are you now going south? You join a traveler on the road and he's going north. You say, you know, you, you shouldn't be going north. It's dangerous up there. You should be going south. He said, well, I repented about a year ago. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I realized I was going the wrong direction. I turned around and I started going south. But you're going north right now. Yeah, I know. But I, 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 I repented one time. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just going north for a little while. I don't think you repented. You see, people who find out that you shouldn't be going north because it's dangerous and start going south. They don't turn back around and go north again. If they do, then they didn't really repent. You see, repentance is not an act of the will. It's not something that you just decide to do. A lot of people's humility is an act of the will. In other words, Lord, help me be humble. I got to be humble. Somebody says something to me, all right, I'm going to be humble. No response. See, I'm Amish. I'm not going to talk back to you. But I'm thinking how proud you are. 
So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I'm voluntarily humble. I'm willfully humble. So I'm sitting here, I'm keeping my mouth shut. And so I think I formulated an answer that I can give you that doesn't make me look too proud, but kind of dresses you down. So I formulated an answer. That's, that's voluntary humility. That's willful humility. As long as you're on guard, it works. As long as you're attentive and have self-control, that kind of humility will work. But it's not humility that really comes from the heart. It's just a, a feigned action. A lot of people's repentance is like that. They decide that they're going to repent and stop sinning and get right with God and believe the gospel. So they stop going north. They start going south, wishing they were north, but going south. And then they get off guard and they start going back north again. And they, they're sorry and they, they, they force themselves to go south a little while. And they're going back north some more. And that's not biblical repentance. That's an act of the will to change your actions. And it won't save you. You see, biblical repentance, the person who experiences it doesn't even know what to call it. Usually. And doesn't know he's repenting. And doesn't know it's happening. The proof of it is that tomorrow, instead of going north, he's headed south. And the rest of his life, he's headed south. You say, are you talking about living differently? You got to start living holy? No, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about there must be a change in regard to one thing in particular in repentance. There must be a complete reversal. I'm not talking about the way you live. A complete reversal. You say, what is it? Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. See, all repentance involves a turn from something to something. Going north, a turn from going north, a turn to go south. All repentance involves a turn. The nature of that turn is not defined in the word repent. So the Bible must define the meaning of repent. You cannot allow theologians to do it. The Bible defines it as toward God. So if my repentance is turning toward God, God's in the south, not the north, which, which he is, by the way. So if I turn to the south where God dwells <laughs> and turn away from the north and turn to the south, if I repent toward God, what am I repenting from? What am I repenting from if I repent toward God. So you're repenting from sin. No. Because in the Bible. You remember Judas. Judas repented from his sin. Judas was a thief. He stole. Judas a lazy bum. Seeking to advance himself. With stealing money. Ended up being highly trusted by Jesus. So much so that he got to carry the money for all 13 of them. And whenever Jesus wanted to give money to poor people, he'd tell Judas, go give him this, give him that. Wanted some food, Judas, go buy the food. And so Judas saw the chips the way they were falling and decided that Jesus was going to be crucified. Things were going to go down bad. And he decided to make a little profit on it, 30 pieces of silver. So he went to the high priest and he said, I'll sell him to you for 30 pieces of silver. I'll tell you where he's hiding out. 
The Bible tells us why he did it. Because he loved money. He was a thief. And so Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then he saw Jesus carried off after kissing him in the garden. Saw him carried off. Saw him beaten. Saw what he suffered. And suddenly Judas changed his mind about what he'd done. He got very sorry that he'd, he'd sold Jesus. And he'd give anything to undo it, including the 30 pieces of silver. So he takes his money and he goes back to the temple. And he said, I'm sorry I sold Jesus. I did the wrong thing. I'm going to give you the money back. You give me Jesus back. He repented, didn't he? He was going north to sell Jesus out. And he turned and started going south to bind back and undo what he did. The priest said, we don't want your blood money. He threw it down the floor, showing his sincerity. This man had given up money as his pursuit. So much that he threw the money in the floor and said, I'm through with it. I've done the wrong thing. He was certainly sorry, and he should have been. It was a proper sorrow to be sorry for the sin he'd done. He'd made amends, too. He gave the money back. And so he went out and hung himself. You say, well, did he go to heaven? The Bible said he went to perdition, to hell. Judas died and went to his own place, to hell. Why didn't his repentance save him? Because that's not saving repentance. Saving repentance is toward God, not away from sin. Judas turned away from his sin. That didn't save him. And then there's another character in the Bible. Simon is a sorcerer. And he repents of his sorcery. The book of Acts. He decides that's not the proper way to go. He stops being into witchcraft and sorcery and he joins the Christians. And he's baptized in water and he praises God for his deliverance from a life of sin and witchcraft and darkness. And he's among the Christians. And one day he sees the apostles lay hands on somebody and they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And miracles take place. And Simon says, man, that is a power like I, I never had when I was into witchcraft. I'd love to have that power. So he goes to the apostle. And he said, how much money? I'll make a donation to the church. I'll make a big offering to the church. Uh, just for, you know, for God and for all these poor people stuff. If you'll give me that power to lay hands on people so they can be. Healed and miracles will take place. You know what the apostle said to him? He said, your money go to hell with you. Your money perish with you. He said, you're in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. He said, you have no part in this. Simon wasn't saved. He repented of his old life. He'd stopped his life of witchcraft. But there was something missing in Simon. You know what it was? It was his heart. His heart. You have no part in this. He said his heart was not right with God. God didn't have his heart. God had his life style. God had his commitment. God had his confidence. But he didn't have his heart. The test was not Simon do you remember repenting right? The test is Simon where's your heart right now? Are you a man 
who is repentant toward God. He was not. You see, Simon never turned his heart to God. Judas, when he repented, didn't turn his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He just was fearful over his sin. I've seen a lot of people get fearful over their sin. Panic, man. Panic. Get scared to death over their sin. Scared of going to hell. Hear a sermon on hell, their sinfulness. And come down an aisle and start bawling and crying and beg God to save them from hell. They don't get any more saved than a person would watching Star Wars. No salvation in it all. You know why? Because that was just a selfish sinner. Finding out he's in trouble for the way he's lived. Wanting to get out of trouble. And thinking God is the answer. You know what that man lacked? He lacked repentance toward God. See, repentance and faith are the same thing. One is stating it negatively, repentance, and faith is stating it positively. The proof that they're the same thing is that about 120 times in the New Testament it speaks of faith or believing to be saved, and about a dozen times it speaks of repentance and belief as the way to salvation. And about two or three times, I've forgotten the exact number, it speaks of repentance alone as the way of salvation. It says that repentance and remission of sin should be preached to Israel. So if you repent, according to Jesus, you won't perish. If you believe, according to Jesus, you won't perish. If you repent and believe, you won't perish. Therefore, if A equals D and C equals D and A and C equals D then A and C are the same thing now repentance is stating it negatively if you look in the Bible at the times that God tells someone to repent as opposed to telling them to believe it's always to someone who is aggressively walking north with their back turned made a choice, I will not go south, I'm going north, aggressively walking the wrong direction. And he tells them, you need to repent. But if it's somebody just laudering around, going no direction at all, he tells them, go south. He doesn't say, stop going north. If you look at the people that Jesus spoke to, he said to the scribes and Pharisees, repent. He said to the common people, the prostitutes, believe. He said to the publicans, believe. He said to the scribes with their views of Judaism, he said, you need to repent. So he said repentance to people that had chosen an alternative to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. To people who were actively committed to a false belief system, he told them to repent. But the people who were just buried in sin, he told them to believe. So today, if we were following Jesus' pattern, if I were to go out on the street and find a drunk, prostitute, queer, and preach the gospel to them, I wouldn't tell them to repent. What do they think you're telling them to do? They think you're saying, hey, get straight, get you a suit and a tie and clean up and get yourself straightened out and start living right, you know, and get real sorry for your sins. And helpless sinner's not going to do any of that. Can't. That'd be discouraging to him. I'm not going to tell him repent. You know, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I'm going to offer him a hand up to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. 
That's all. Nothing for him to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the positive side. But if I were out on the street preaching and Jehovah's Witnesses said to me, I don't believe Jesus is God. I say, you better repent or you'll perish. I say, if you don't change your mind about the Lord Jesus Christ, or if I were out and I were talking to a guy and he said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. I said, you better repent or you're going to perish. If I were out and I were talking to a Buddhist or a Roman Catholic or a Baptist who said anything that indicated they were rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting truth for some alternate belief system, then I'd say to them, you must repent or you'll perish. And that's exactly the way Jesus and the apostles used the terminology. It is a pitiful thing when someone trying to preach the gospel goes to a down and out sinner and tells them they need to repent. That's always a work for them. They're in bed, sick with a disease and dying, and you tell them, you need to get well. <laughs> and what they need is a doctor. But if a guy jumps up out of the bed and says, there's nothing wrong with me. I know I'm not dying. And he starts running down the hall to go home, pulling the tubes out. I say to him, you need to repent. You need to get back here and submit to treatment. You understand the difference? So, have you repented toward the Lord Jesus Christ? The one thing that we're missing is sinners. Is something that Adam lost. When Adam chose to disobey God and eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he repented from God. Do you understand what I just said? He repented from God when he ate and disobeyed God. Adam reordered the world system. God set the world system up so that man should live in fellowship to God, trust to God, faith to God, subjection to God, confidence, love toward God. Not independence, not rebellion. Not self-sufficiency, not self-seeking, not self-gratifying, but in fellowship with God. And Adam says, hang it, God. Take it and stuff it. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to follow you, your system, or your ideas, or your concepts. I'm going to do my thing my way, and I'm going to have some pleasure. And Adam unrepented. He repented away from God. And the whole human race, your babies, everybody is born separated from God. With a primary focus of the flesh. That's the focus of the little children sitting in this room. Their focus is the flesh. Feeding it, resting it, cooing it, tickling it, scratching it, preferring it above all things. And that's the vanity and that's the lot of humanity. It's not sinful in itself. But it results in time and maturity and sinfulness because when the child becomes aware of true values, they reject the true and the good values for selfishness. When a child grows up and gets to be 13 or 14 years old, you know what he needs to do? He needs to repent toward God. He's been living his life without God. He needs to repent toward God. He needs to repent toward God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that's not a religious experience. That's not an event. That's a change. As permanent as the change Adam made. 
Adam reversed the situation. God, I'm on my own. Repentance toward God is reversing that situation and saying, okay, God, I'm back on your side. You're back in charge. I'm back to believing. I'm back to loving. I'm back to trusting. You are my focus. You're my purpose. You're my destiny. You are my foundation. You are my everything. It is turning from whatever prevents you from coming to God. Repentance is turning from everything by turning to God. Now, I'm thankful that in going north into sin and independence, and see, God's, God's down here at the south, enthroned. So I'm going north into self-sufficiency, maybe not a great deal of evil, but just self-consciousness, self-awareness, self-fulfillment. I'm walking along. And I must repent toward God. Now, this is very important. Some people define repentance in such a way that I'm wading through this morass of sin and repent towards God. I've got to get out of it, kind of clean myself off, and then make this turn. No. Repentance toward God is just saying, I'm through with this. I want God to be the center. And folks, he just reached down and yanks you out of all that and turns you into to face him. It's not my work. Repentance is not my doing any more than faith is. Repentance is not an activity. It's not an action. It is a refocus on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. It is a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people preach what they call lordship salvation. That is, that you've got to make Jesus the Lord of your life to be saved. If that's true, none of us are saved yet. That is, if there's one area where Jesus is not Lord, then we wouldn't be saved, would we? If we had a lordship salvation. So repentance is not me making a commitment to stop all these sins and being sorry for each and every sin. It is turning toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's like getting married. When I got married, I gave up a lot of pretty charming girls. I did. I had a lot of fine girlfriends, you know. I mean, I girlfriends in every state. Because I traveled and preached. And so everywhere I went, there were girls. And I liked them all. Some of them I even talked to. So when I got married, I said no to all of them. And I sealed my fate with one charming, lovely woman. Sexiest one in the group. And so I chose her above all the others. I'd have a girl I'd like for a couple months, you know, and another one I'd like for a couple months or something. And those were just temporary decisions. They were reversible. Take one out to buy a hamburger, small, please. Don't get anything big, no extra cheese. And, and that's a reversible decision. You don't have to marry them just because you bought them a hamburger. But when, when I said to her, let's get married a week from now, and we got married, and I said, I do, I made a covenant for as long as we live, never to separate. And getting and repenting towards God is that. It is something that is eternal, it's permanent, doesn't change. That is forever. Now, let's see if you have repented towards God. Let's test you out. Let's look in the bag and see if there's salt there. 
Bible does say you're the salt of the earth. So how will I know if there's salt there? Well, somebody might tell you if you're going to church and tithing. Then, <laughs> or somebody else will tell you, you know, if you're witnessing or reading your Bible or whatever like that. And all that's just surface stuff. Just fluff. The Bible said the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're His. If you've repented towards God, then He is your focus every single day. He is the focus of all your decisions. He is the purpose of your life. You do not live a life independent of a consciousness of Him and what this means to Him. That means that if you've repented towards God, you don't go in and get on a computer and look at pornography on the web. No one who's repented towards God could sit in front of a computer and look at pornography on the web. Now, I'm not saying a person couldn't, in a moment of weakness, do that once, maybe twice. And then suddenly the Spirit of God is so grieving, so tormenting, so tearing at his soul. There's such a loss, such a loneliness, such an emptiness of his failure that that repentance is still working there. He turns to God fully, confesses, weeps, sorry for his sin, and becomes desperate the rest of his life, never to do that again. And he walks in truth and holiness. Yes, it's possible that a saved person could be lured at work by a wicked woman and commit fornication. But I'll tell you what a saved person doesn't do. He doesn't unrepent. His heart cannot be placed on a woman that's not his wife and stay there. His heart cannot be placed on pornography. It cannot be placed on stealing. It cannot be placed on lying, thieving, selfishness, drunkenness, drugs, alcohol, things like that. If your heart has been given to God and you've repented to him, that's where it abides. And any sin that comes into your life comes in the middle of a heart that craves God more than anything else. And if the flesh momentarily fails, it has to confront a heart that's pure with God. And there's going to be a conflict and a struggle there like you've never seen in, in your life. Because sin is going to be dwelling in an alien body that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. A tabernacle where God dwells. And that sin's not going to be comfortable or welcome. If sin is comfortable in your body, in your mind. If sin can lodge there for days without being driven out by the presence of God. You've never repented. Toward God. You've never made that permanent decision to turn your heart to God and love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. That's never happened to you. You experienced a man made temporary repentance. You experienced a Judas repentance, a Simon repentance, a repentance of the will, an act, a one time event. That you think somehow in your history is going to make a difference in eternity. And it won't. So Jesus said, except you repent, you'll perish. Have you repented? Repentance and faith are the same thing. Negative and positive are the same act. Repentance is telling you what to do. Turn. Faith is telling you where to turn to. To God. Repentance toward God. And faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul said we've been preaching. 
And anybody that preaches anything else is a liar and a deceiver. And if you believe something else, you've been deceived. So today, correct your doctrine and do what Paul said in another place. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You know, salvation is such an easy thing. But for some people, it's so hard and so far, far, far away. Because if you don't love God's righteousness, if you don't love truth, if you don't love holiness, you'll never be saved. You can't be. I've seen the lowest, worst sinners sat in front of a 17-year-old prostitute girl one night, sat on the grass somewhere talking to her. I don't remember where. I was about 20, 19 or 20. She's used on the street, didn't live at home. She was used out, you know, prostitute. And she was not just sorry for her, her life. She was, she was lonesome for God and holiness and purity. She was. And it was so easy for her to get saved. So easy for her to believe the gospel and let the Lord Jesus Christ embrace her and save her and forgive her. So easy. And yet I've seen good Christian, quote, people struggle for years and never get saved when that little prostitute could. And you know, she knew so little. After she got saved, somebody walked up and said, do you repent? She said, he didn't mention that. <laughs> if you'd have walked up to her after she got saved and said, do you make Jesus Lord of your life? She said, how do I do it? I want to do it. Tell me how. If you'd have walked up to her and said, well, have you made your commitment? What? My what? My what? Did I, did I miss something? She didn't understand anything except God loves her, wants her, forgives her, that Jesus died and paid the price. Right. And if she comes like she is, he'll take her. That's all she understood. And that was enough to get her born again. And never to go back in sin. But there are others who, I remember one night we had a meeting. We were going to camp meeting. I was about 17. Boy, I witnessed everybody I saw when I was 17 years old. I witnessed the people. I'd get in a grocery store and start hollering at people. I mean, I just I irritated people everywhere. And uh, I'd, I'd hang out the windows driving along and holler at people on the side of the road. And so I was out walking about 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And these two guys standing on the street corner smoking. So I stopped and witnessed to both of them. And they were interested. And I invited them to both come to this camp meeting. I told them I'd pay. It was $35 a piece. So, Sunday afternoon, they loaded up with us and went off to this camp for a week. And I witnessed them all. We had some good meetings. A lot of people getting saved. You know, people hollering and crying and laughing and falling down on the ground and getting saved. And my brother got scared. He ran. He got about 100 yards from the building, fell down in the leaves. He got saved. Toward the end of the meeting there, a group of people got around one of these boys and started praying for him to get saved. He was, he was the last holdout in the whole building. Man, he started crying. He started begging God to save him. He started praying and he uh, thanked God for salvation and all that. And we all rejoiced. And next morning I couldn't find him. And I looked, looked finally about the middle of the morning. I found him. And he said, what did you do to me? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you guys mesmerized me. He said, you messing with my mind. He's a queer today. He didn't get saved. He just had an emotional experience. We brought it on with a lot of intense emotion around him and everything. And he had an emotional experience. And 
And he went, went through the whole thing. And even, you know, what, 12 hours later, he was angry that we'd induced that in him, that experience. And he called it mesmerizing, hypnotizing his mind. I continued to know the guy for the next three or four years. I wrestled with him, rode bicycles with him, witnessed to him. And he never did. He just always was totally resistant to the gospel. What kind of experience did you have? Don't tell me about how much you cried. Don't tell me about how much you shouted. Don't tell me about how high you jumped. Tell me right now, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he first? Is he foremost? Is he the center of your life? Don't tell me you spoke in tongues. Don't tell me you cast out devils or performed miracles or done wonderful works. Tell me, is the Lord Jesus Christ your all in all? Or are you able to secretly sin? You can steal. You can lie. You can lust. And go from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And it not tear at the Lord Jesus Christ living inside of you. You never repented towards God. You're lost in your sins. I'll stop there. The ball's in your court now.